Corinthians 5 verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive what is due for due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade men. What we are plain is God, is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We're not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, it is for the sake of God. If we're in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, though we once regarded Christ in this way. We do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And that he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favour I have heard you, in the day of salvation I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favour. Now is the day of salvation. Well, as we read through 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we come across the problem of the inclusive we. We is a wonderful word, but we're not sure who we refers to. We always refers to me, but who else? It's plural, so it's not me alone. It's me and somebody else, but who is the somebody else? You see, we say, we enjoyed the convention. Who's the we in that sentence? Me, some others, possibly you. We enjoyed the convention till you came. <laughs> well, that's me and some others and not you. We enjoyed the convention till they came. Well, that's certainly me, some others, presumably you and not them. We enjoyed the convention, didn't we? Well, we don't know who it is, although it's me, and I'm inviting the person who I'm saying it to to join me in that. We enjoyed the convention, didn't we? You're with me at this point. So when you just get the word we, you don't know the boundaries. You don't know where, where the we ends. That's the problem here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and the section I just read for you. It's in lots of the places in the New Testament, but that's what we're looking at now. So, with that in mind, we're going to look at this passage and turn to my third topic, why evangelise? For the thing that I mentioned before, Christians and non-Christians agree about on the subject of evangelism is that we don't like it. We don't, they don't like us preaching the gospel to them, and we don't like selling and the pressure and the activity. So when we ask the question, as some people do, why evangelise, they're really asking the question, who should evangelise, who has to evangelise, must I evangelise? I mean, who should evangelise? Should it just be the gifted evangelists? Or should it be our ministers should do it? Or should it be some kind of apostles or missionaries? Or should it be every Christian? You see, I think the question is really wrongly praised in a sense. We're not asking who should, we're really asking do I have to? It's the Pharisee's question, isn't it? I look like I want to be involved, but I'm looking for the loophole wherever I can. The better question really is why evangelise? Why should anyone evangelise? 
What role does evangelism play in the purposes of God? Last talk, we left at 2 Corinthians 5.10 about the fear of the Lord in the judgment seat of Christ, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. 5.11, therefore, flows on from 5.10 in lots of translations, like the one I have in front of me, like the ESV, New heading, new section, new paragraph, all aimed to make it easier for the reader not to understand the Bible. (laughs) Since, or since then, or therefore, shows that it's directly connected to what's just gone before. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, the beginning of the wisdom comes from the fear of the Lord, isn't it? That he is the judge, and therefore, we are seeking to live for him, and we are going to give answer to him, And therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we, and you see the problem now, don't you? Who's the we? Who's who's included in the we? Is it just the apostle and the others who write with him? Is it we, Corinthians, and the apostles? See, verses 11 to 15 differentiate we and you. Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men what we are plain to God, and I hope... It is also plain to your conscience. The second half, the we doesn't include the Corinthians because he's talking about them as yours. The first half, well, is it the Corinthians as well as the apostle or is he just talking about himself? So verse 12, we're not trying to commend ourselves to you again. So the we in the first half there cannot include the Corinthians. So it's we, the apostles, we, the the missionaries. When you get down to verse 16, though, so from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view, though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do know so longer. Is he talking about himself or is he now being more embracive of the Corinthians? For therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation and the old is gone. So what he's saying of himself in verse 16, in verse 17 he says it's true of all Christians. And so it's not that you've got we always only refers in this passage to Paul, and not the Corinthians. Sometimes in some sentences it's Paul as opposed to the Corinthians. Sometimes it's Paul including the Corinthians. And in each sentence, every time the word we comes up, we have to work out where's the boundary? Who's being included in the we? Is this something that is explicitly the role of the apostle or is this something that is for all Christians to be engaged in? Of course, we're Pharisees. And because we don't like evangelism, we're looking for it to be the apostles only, aren't we? That's what we want because that lets us off the hook. But I won't let you. So (laughs) down in verse 16, we and you should. Verse 20, we implore you. And that's one that's a key one that I'm going to come back to later. Now, before we decide on this, I see I just said use the word we. Uh, really what I meant was before I decided on it and persuaded you to it, before we decide on this, notice that whoever we are, we persuade. Whether it's just Paul or whether it's the Corinthians as well, we persuade. That's the aim, to persuade. That's what Paul did. If you follow his track record through Acts, say Acts 17, where he persuades the Thessalonians that the Christ, that Jesus is the Christ. Then he moves on to the Bereans where he's teaching and persuading them. Then he moves into Corinth where again he argues and reasons and persuades them. Then in 19 he goes to Ephesus where he reasons, argues to persuade. The aim of evangelism is the aim of persuasion, teaching, declaring, proclaiming in order to persuade people to agree and commit themselves to it. It's an intellectual activity of the mind that goes from one mind to the other mind in order to engage the heart, in order to bring the person over to an agreement with what you're saying. Why evangelise? Why persuade? Well, because he knows the fear of the Lord. He knows the reality of the resurrection life that we are living for and that we are going to face either prepared by the gospel or unprepared to meet him. The gospel prepares us to meet him to give answer for what we have done with the life that he has given to us. And so he explains this, so that the Corinthians may be able to answer others. Verse 12, 
we're not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearances and not about what is in the heart. If you look at 2 Corinthians as a whole, you'll see that there are super apostles who are going around very impressive and uh, Paul is being put down as not very impressive. His letters are weighty, but his speech is not very impressive, you see. And Paul is saying, you don't judge by the outside, by the external appearances, but by the heart. That's what matters in Christ. That's what we see. What is in the heart of the person? Does the heart agree with your heart about the gospel truths? Not how tall, good-looking, handsome, intelligent, eloquent, humorous, all those kinds of things. See, you can look at me and you can think, he's a wonderful evangelist. Have you ever seen one that's as good-looking as I am? (laughs) It's just hypothetical. You didn't have to laugh quite so quickly (laughs) at that point. And that is judging by the externals, not by what's on the heart. I was in a conference somewhere, I won't mention where, because I don't want to be anti-American. And... (laughs) I needed a haircut and the uh, person who was driving me around said, oh, there's a barber in the bottom of your hotel. So I went down to get the haircut down the barber and uh, I just saw the prices or something. I thought, I just got the whiff of it. I said, how much the haircut? He said, $100. So I said, thank you very much and went back upstairs and I got the person who was showing me around later. I said, I'm not going to have a haircut for $100. I said, you've got a real barber that can play, you know, charge me a decent price. He said, no, no, Mr. Jensen. When they call him Mr. Jensen, you know they haven't understood me. No, Mr. Jensen, you're a speaker. Speakers are out the front. They've got to appear. They've got to appear properly groomed, you see. And so I'm not going to take you to a cheap barber because then you won't look properly groomed in front of the audience and that's a very important thing. And so at the Detroit airport, I found a barber for five bucks. (laughs) Are you going to judge me by my grooming? you haven't understood the gospel. You're not looking me at me through the eyes of Christ. You haven't understood Christ. It's not how I look on the platform that matters, which gives a bloke like me a chance. <laughs> you understand that privilege that's available. You don't have to be the ultimate good-looking, well-groomed person. In fact, that gets in the way of the gospel truth. Isn't this encouraging for us little people? You go look in the mirror and say, yeah, clay pot, I've got a chance. Don't say, oh, yeah, if I paid more money, I'll look better. It's the heart, you see. And so I'm explaining this, he says, so that you'll know my motives, so that you you won't be embarrassed about me because you'll be thinking as you should be thinking, not being impressed by the externals. And they'll see him as some will see him, as a mad apostle. And so he gives a defence of being the mad apostle because his life looks mad. I mean, when you read the account of his preaching and his life, he looks mad. Do you want this on your CV? You know, I've, I've been shipwrecked five times. I've been whipped 90, uh, 30, uh, whipped 39 times. Uh, with the 39, whipped several times. Uh, I've, been, uh, I've, I've been in prison. I've been stoned. That's not a drug reference. That's, uh, I've been stoned. I've been <laughs> left for dead. I've been, this is my CV, right? I, I've been pilloried and hated by people everywhere I go. Uh, now, can I get a job for public relations? I mean, there's... It's not what people want for their children. I mean, this lovely missionary lady from India, an English lady who had missioned in India, then came to Australia because she wanted, well, she wanted her children to go back to India. And so she didn't want them to get too far from the mission field. So they moved to Australia to have their teenagers in high school. And she was a lovely lady. She's in the Lord, with the Lord in glory now. And she said to me when she prayed, when she was pregnant with her babies in India, she prayed that they would be kept safe. And I thought, yes, that would be very sensible. And she said, and I always prayed that they'd be Christians. And I thought, yeah, well, every Christian mother I know prays that. And she said, and I always prayed they'd be missionaries. Well, that made me uncomfortable. <laughs> I'd prayed the other two things for my kids, but I hadn't been praying for that. But that's, she was raising missionaries for the Lord Jesus Christ. That was her hope, aspiration and goal for her children, that they would go into the world to preach the gospel wherever. And they did. 
The one that I was particularly associated with, uh, he went to France, which is a long way from India and even further from Australia, and she should have gone back to England if she wanted him to be a French uh, missionary, but <laughs> never mind, God knows what he's doing. You, what do you want for your children? What are your hopes? What are your aspirations? Because that's one of the great tests of your own hopes and aspirations for yourself. Because you don't, you can't be greedy for yourself, can you? But for your children, well, I'm not being greedy. It's for the children, isn't it? I, I would just like them to have a nice, comfortable home and a good, secure job and a nice income. It's not for myself. That would be selfish. But for them, mind you, it's not for everybody's children. It's just for my children that I want these things. That's the t acid test of what you really aspire to, hope for, long for, what you want for your children. And that dear soul, she challenged me deeply as to what I wanted for my children because she wanted them to be missionaries like Paul, suffering in, in rejection and of no account by anybody. It looked mad. And his understanding, look, his understanding, people thought was mad. So when he was called before Festus in Acts 26, he was explaining the gospel. And as he was saying these things, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning has driven you mad. And Paul said, I'm not mad, my most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking the truth in rational words. And still today, when people give up their career and their safety and their wealth and their income to pursue gospel preaching, the world thinks we're mad. They'll accept it if you become a missionary doctor because you're still a doctor. But to give up being a doctor in order to preach the gospel, I've paid all this money for you to go through medicine. Why are you throwing? The government's given you a scholarship to go through medicine. Surely you could be a, a doctor something. The world has doctors. Christians don't need all that many more. Excuse me, those of you who are doctors. Rude to another group of people who are here. <laughs> because in the end, even the health problems of the world are not going to be solved by doctors. The health problems of the world are solved by plumbers. It's plumbers who give us clean water. It's plumbers who give us good sewerage. It's plumbers who keep the community alive. They're really important people. <laughs> you want to aspire to help the world, get your children to be plumbers. <laughs> and when you say, but the Holy Spirit has led me to be a doctor, have you ever noticed how upper middle class the Holy Spirit is? <laughs> Always leading people up the ladder. The Holy Spirit doesn't seem to want plumbers doesn't want sewerage workers. Humanity needs them, but the Holy Spirit doesn't want them. <laughs> no, my friends. It's the gospel that changes people's hearts and minds and transforms societies and the world and created modern medical faculties and medicine and the work that we do, which is so valuable to us when we're sick. But it's it's the Christian convention, it's the Christian conviction that does it. I was watching a TV show the other night and they were showing six Victorians doing extraordinary things in London. And it was really fascinating because as I watched it, I thought, that man's not a Christian. That man is. And then, of course, I immediately went and Googled and there they were, Christian. One of them was a man who went into the slums of London and by caring for the poor, the doctor, he found actually the source of cholera and the way in which cholera was transmitted in the slums, putting his life totally at risk. And I thought, why would a rich doctor in the 19th century London do that? Bet he was a Christian. Out comes Mr Google through Wikipedia. There's the story of him. Flip across to some reliable kinds of accounts, as Christian as Christian could be. Yeah, but you see, you've got to have the changed heart to be willing to do that kind of work. And the gospel changes the hearts of people. Now, Paul looked like he was mad, as anybody who leaves the safety and security of this world and its hopes and aspirations looks mad. 
when they give up all to go preach the gospel. But Paul says, if he is mad, then he's mad for God. For whatever madness I have is between me and God. For another than God's sake, I've accepted what the world calls madness. So I have no choice but as I continue for the sake of God and the mission I'm in. But if, on the other hand, I'm not mad, if I'm sane, then he says, I'm sane for you. Verse 13, you see, if you're out of your mind, it's for the sake of God. But if we're in our right mind, it's for you. The reason I do what I do is for you because, and now he gives the reasoning, we see ourselves as the slaves of you for Christ's sake, chapter 4, verse 5. And so he explains it. Verse 14 is explaining. It starts with the word for, because. And there are four steps in the logic. Firstly, the love of Christ controls us. Christ's love for us, Christ's death on our behalf, controls, constrains, surrounds, hedges us in. I love watching animals being pushed up onto a truck to be taken off to the slaughter because I'm a carnivore. I love watching the animals in the ways in which they get put into these kind of races. And as they go further up the race, there is nowhere else for them to go but to tip into the truck. That's the word for constraint. That's the word that means here. The, the sense of compulsion that is upon him. The love of Christ holds me in so that I can do no other. Do you know the love of Christ? Oh, I'm not talking about how Christ loves you. No, no, I'm talking about the death of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross for you. The prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. The appeal to his Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you know the love of Christ? Because the more you know the love of Christ, the more you'll be constrained and controlled. Secondly, he explains Christ's controlling love because we have concluded, we, we have... Uh, compulsion because we are convinced in the NIV we're convinced it's a mental decision we've looked at the evidence we've weighed the arguments we've thought through the issue and we're convinced of something what is it thirdly one died for all and therefore all have died he died as our representative and more as our substitute on him was laid the iniquity of us all I love different sports. Uh, I don't know how to illustrate this. I'll say football and you think of whichever football you're thinking of. You can be a representative player. That is, you are representing your country. You've got the, the country's shirt on and you're playing for your country. And that's why we're all standing behind cheering you because you're playing for us. You're our representative. But halfway through the second half, the coach calls you over to the sideline and he sends in a substitute a substitute who is playing in your place. The representative is not playing in my place. The representative is representing me. But the substitute is playing in the place of the other person. The Lord Jesus Christ died as our representative. But he also died as my substitute. He took my death upon himself. And that's why he can say, and therefore all have died. For I died in the death of Jesus. To be a disciple is to deny myself, to take up the cross and follow him, to lose my life for the sake of the gospel. And so Christ has died my death and in response to the gospel, I have died to him. And so I have died with Christ, as it says in Colossians 2. Or as Romans 6, I have been, I have been buried in a baptism into Christ. He died my death on the cross I died my death in repentance. I have died with Christ. Fourthly, he died for all so that those who live, not just Paul, it's universal, the we is everybody now, so that, that is we Christians, so that we no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died and rose for them. And therefore, we no longer live for ourselves, but we live for others because our Lord wants us to live for others, to serve others. That's how we serve him, by serving others. We are your slaves for Christ's sake. With that, he then comes to the conclusion in verses 16 following. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regarded him no longer 
From now on, because we used to regard people according to the flesh, we used to be impressed by the beautiful, the athletic, the wealthy, the clever. We, not just the apostles, Christians, are not to regard people the way the world does. I was taken down for a lovely meal down at the mall. Is there more than one mall around here? It was a big mall. It was anyway, I saw the fountains going up and down. You know the place? Um, anyway, that's where I was. And walking around there, it was a fascinating cultural experience to walk around there because of the diversities of clothes. The clothes said volumes, didn't it? About the nationality, the ethnicity, about the religious background, about the class, the status, the wealth. There was the constant watching of everybody else around about uh, as they knew where they fitted into the pecking order of relationships, all on the clothes. But underneath the clothes are naked bodies, and they're all the same. And inside that, there is the same human heart pumping blood. We're all one blood in the end. There's no difference, ultimately. But we put on all manners of differences to show that we're not them, we're us. And there's them and there's us and we know we're better than them. And so we can live like this. But no, there's only two kinds of humanity, those who know Christ and those who don't know Christ. They're the only two, really, in the end. There was a South African bishop that I knew well and he came to Australia many times during the time of apartheid, which was, um, which was a dreadful time. And uh, Australians were very interested in apartheid uh, because we have such strong friendship, kinship with our South African uh, family, really. So everybody always asked Stephen Bradley, you know, what's the problem in South Africa? What can we do in South Africa? And Stephen Bradley, he knew what he was saying. He said, well, the problem with South Africa is very simple in one sense. He said, the trouble with South Africa is there's two kinds of South Africans. There are those who have Christ, those who have not got Christ. That's the problem with South Africa. Now, he was not so stupid as not to know there are other problems in South Africa. But that's the fundamental problem. You overcome that fundamental problem, then you're on a basis upon which you can start sorting out the other problems, which are real indeed. But that's a Christian way of thinking about people. And so, the life we now live is quite different. For the love of Christ controls us that we no longer live for ourselves but for him and because we live for him, we live for you. And so we don't regard you according to the flesh. We're not impressed. The world is impressed but we're not impressed. We're not fearful. The world would terrify us but we're not to be fearful. We're not seduced. The world would love to seduce us but we're not to be seduced. We don't judge by externals. For us to live is Christ, to die is gain. You can never really hurt someone who gains by dying, can you? And so we see people as a new creation from God. All that matters is whether you're born again, not which denomination you come from, not how spiritual you are or how moral you are or whether you're well-fed or healthy or whether you are black or brown or white or pink or yellow or any other shade that you might want to have on your skin. It's all an irrelevance, isn't it, my brothers and sisters? I love being here looking at you guys. I really love it because you are such a mixed bag. It is really just so beautiful to see because the way the world sees would not have a group like us here together, would it? It just is not the way of the world, but it is the way of Christ. And we sing together the same song and read the same Bible and pray to the same Lord and have the same life and treat each other as brothers and sisters in the family of God, which is infinitely more important than any other family we could be in. This is the new creation from God. All that matters, you see, is whether we are his it's all from God, verse 18, the new creation from God. I can't bring anybody to new birth. I can preach the gospel. One man spurns it. The next man embraces it. What's the difference? It's the same gospel, same preacher. The difference is that God is at work in their lives. And that difference is enormous. 
Because if God is at work in the message that I'm bringing to people, then it's more than Moses' great ministry that I have. The power is within this clay pot. And Christ is writing letters on people's hearts as I speak. So we have the ministry of reconciliation. Our ministry, the work of evangelism, is the work of reconciliation, making peace with God and therefore making peace with each other. And so making peace between people as they commonly are reconciled together to God. And so he describes it as, in Christ, God reconciling the world to himself. This is God's great work in the Lord Jesus Christ. God's great work in the death of his only son. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. That's the big problem. That's the one God sent his son to deal with. And because in Christ God was reconciling, restoring relationships, friendships, making compatible, he did it in a two-stage program. Not counting our trespasses against us, by entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. Not counting our trespasses because Jesus' death on our behalf. Remember 1 Corinthians 15, 3. I delivered to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins. That is why our sins and trespasses are not counted against us because they've already been paid for in full. But secondly, the second stage of the program is entrusting the message to us. Do you remember the scene in the upper room, the resurrection? When Jesus had risen from the dead and appeared to the disciples, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Let's just turn to it, Luke chapter 24, Luke chapter 24. He opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Because as of yet, they hadn't understood what the word of God was saying to them. And he spoke in red letters. A very strange thing to do. I don't know why God spoke in red letters. Maybe he was working for opticians and wanted to have some more people ruining their eyes. Uh, the Holy Spirit, he speaks in black letters, but the Son, he speaks in red letters. Never have understood Bible publishers, really. Anyway, yeah, I'm just trying to read what it is that I'm seeing. Um, Okay, uh, pick verse 45, I can read that because it's black. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures and he told them, this is what is written, the Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. Huh? That's stage one, that's been done. But this is what is written, the Christ will, it's actually going to happen. And verse 47, repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You're the witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city till you've received, been clothed with power from on high. Two-stage program. One, Jesus dies and rises again. Second stage, end of the world. Well, then who's saved by the death and resurrection of Jesus? No, no, second stage. The death and resurrection of Jesus is going to be preached to all nations. Jesus dying without the gospel being preached doesn't save anybody because nobody knows about the death that's just been won for them. The second stage is as important as the first stage, is as determined by God as the first stage, is as inevitably prophesied in the Old Testament as the second stage. There's a little Greek word there, dei, D-E-I, which means must, which is written in the text there. These things must happen. That's what he was showing them, what the scriptures would happen, that it will suffer, he will die, and he will be preached to the ends of the earth. That is the message. God's great plan for the world, foretold in the Old Testament, implemented by Jesus, was reconciling the world to himself by Jesus' death and resurrection and preaching the gospel. Preaching the gospel is not an optional extra for Christianity. 
it is as fundamental to Christianity as the death and resurrection of Jesus. This is God's great plan. Thus Paul says, back in 2 Corinthians now 5, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. Ambassadors don't have their own message. They carry the message of their king, their master, their political ruler. We are like ambassadors. God uses us to make his message known, to make his appeal to the nations known. Just as we were slaves, faithfully doing our master's bidding, we're also ambassadors, faithfully representing our our master to others. Slaves and ambassadors, that's what we are. And that appeal is, be reconciled to God. That's the appeal to humanity, be reconciled to God. You see it in verse 20. But the ESV, together with the NIV, are wrong. Because they stick the little word you in there, which is not there in the Greek. Because the translators in their dynamic equivalence haven't understood what the text is saying. But they think they do. The Greek word is not there, you. It's not saying we appeal to you to be reconciled to God, you Corinthians to be reconciled to God. It's saying we appeal to be reconciled to God. That is the message of Christians and Christianity. You don't have to appeal to the Corinthians to be reconciled to God because they already were. Paul is telling what his message to the world is, what their message to the world is. The Holman translation, hands up those who've got the Holman translation. Hey, I'm just going to help you out once. Just give you a little positive buzz for buying the Holman. It's right on this occasion. Not on others. But on this occasion it is. (laughs) We plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. See, there's no you in it. We plead on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. That's what your plea is. That's what my plea is. That's what the Apostles Paul plea is. We say to people, be reconciled to God. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting your sins against you, and we are making the appeal to you, be reconciled to God through the death of Jesus Christ on your behalf. Be reconciled to God. Make peace with God while you may. For God has done his work of reconciliation. Verse 21 explains it. For our sake he made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The Lord Jesus was made sin. He became the very embodiment of sin. And why? For our sake. We who are conceived in sin and follow our sinful desires and nature out of love for us and by his grace, he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us. That in him we might become the righteousness of God. That we is not the apostles alone. That's all Christians. And only Paul's not the only person who's going to be the righteousness of God. It's got to be all Christians here. And so, working with God, operating as God's fellow workers, his partners in this operation, we, the apostles and colleagues, we appeal to you, Corinthians, the you is there in chapter 6, verse 1. As God's fellow workers, we urge you, not to receive God's grace in vain. You see, they've received God's grace, they're Christians. Now they've got to not receive it in vain. Have you received God's grace? My brothers and sisters, and you're not, if you haven't, then please make sure you do. Don't go home today without receiving God's grace. But if you've received God's grace, you are Christians, you acknowledge the Lord Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection for you and you are saved, forgiven by him. If you've received God's grace, don't receive it for nothing. Don't receive it in vain. Don't receive it in futility to no point and purpose and outcome other than your own salvation. Do not receive it. That's the Apostle Peel here. His exhortation, his encouragement. That is, don't receive grace God for nothing. For one day, chapter 5, verse 10, you will stand before Christ and it will be a great tragedy to have nothing to show for your lives in Christ Jesus. I don't quote other writers much, but there is an Australian writer, Paul Barnett, who writes about the history of the New Testament a lot. And in his commentary on 2 Corinthians, he had a lovely statement that I'm going to give to you now on that verse, chapter 5, verse 10. The teaching about the judgment seat before which all believers must come reminds us that we have been saved not for a life of aimless indifference, 
but to live as to the Lord. We haven't been saved for nothing. We've been saved to live for him. And to live for him means to lay down our lives for others. This is why Paul didn't lose heart in all his afflictions, because he keeps his eye not on the temporal, but on the eternal. That's why he doesn't lose heart, because he's looking for the things that are permanent and eternal. And while we're looking eternally, we operate temporally. For now is the favourable time. Chapter 6, verse 2. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the moment the prophets were looking forward to. Now is the moment not to lose in your service of the Lord and his people. Now is the moment. So return to our question, why evangelise? And the answer is threefold. Because now is the moment. This is the day of salvation. The moment in history when the amnesty has been won by our Lord Jesus Christ and declared by his servants. This is the moment in our history when out of the fear of the Lord before whom one day we will stand, when out of the love of the Lord who paid the price for us, we are to live for him and for other people and for their salvation. Now is the moment. This is the point in history that we are in. If God did not delay his return now, if God did not delay, if the Lord Jesus came now, your neighbours who do not know Christ are lost. For the end has come. But God has held back his return in 2 Peter chapter 3. Why? To give opportunity for people to repent. Now's the day to call people to repent. This is the moment that we are living in history. This is when I was born. This is when I was reborn. This is the period in which I'm going to die unless the Lord Jesus returns beforehand. I live my life in this period, the period of the gospel going to the ends of the earth. This is, that's the reason for doing it. Secondly, because Christ's actions require it. He has paid the price and we wouldn't want that to be ignored, spurned, missed, ridiculed. We want to uphold it and taught to the world. He has paid the price for us because of his love for us. And are we going to ignore this sacrifice? Or are we going to accept the benefits of it but then live as if it hasn't happened to us? No, no. He died and rose again so that we may no longer live for ourselves but for him. How can I become a Christian in order to go on living for myself? Why, living for myself is the very sin that I've been saved from. What's the point of being saved from living for myself in order to go on living for myself? That's a nonsense. I've been saved in order to live for him. Well, okay, what do you want, Lord? I want the nations to hear. I want the nations called to repentance. I want people to know that, well, then what am I doing? I mustn't be saved and accept the grace in vain. For thirdly, we've been saved for it, saved to do it. To live for him who died for us and rose again, this is the Lord's work. This is what we're called, not only to die to self for, but to follow him. Not only to die for him, but also for the gospel's sakes. So that when that day comes, we might stand before him to receive his commendation or disappointment. But we will not be disappointed, for the work of the Lord is never in vain. Turn back, last passage, to 1 Corinthians 15. Big passage on the resurrection. Finishing up with the judgment. The trumpet, all being changed. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is the sting? Sting of death, sin. Thanks be to God, the victory. Last verse of this terrific chapter, verse 58. Therefore, my dear, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. What is your labour in the Lord? It's not street, sweeping your streets. It, it, it's not doing the work of a dentist. It's not doing the work of the lawyer. It's not doing the work of the clerk. It's certainly not doing the work of the computer IT expert. That's not the work of the Lord. The devil's more in those things. But no, that's not the work of the Lord. 
The work of the Lord is the preaching of the gospel and the building of the church of Christ. That's the work of the Lord. You haven't received the grace of God to go and work for yourself. You've received the grace of God to work for the Lord. That's the work. Now, am I saying everyone therefore must leave their occupation and go and do those things? No, no. No, no. We're all at the work of the Lord. That is, there are no such things as full-time ministers and tent makers and lay people. Everybody's a tent maker. Everybody is earning their living so that they can teach their Sunday school class. For the most important part of the week is the Sunday school class for which I've done my work in the week. And if your Sunday school class gets too big so that you can't make tents anymore because you're too busy, that's when you move into full-time work. But there's no fundamental difference between a tent maker and a tent maker. I mean, there are some of us who have been relieved from the, the need to make tents because of the gifts that God sees that we have and the Christian people see that we have. But the work of evangelism is not the work of the minister. The work of evangelism is the Christian's work. Every Christian. We're all called to this. We're all engaged in this spreading of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll know people your minister will never meet. You spend all day with them at the workplace. You know family members that you can't actually ever get to church, that your minister will never know. That's all right. It's the work of the Lord that you have. And the reason you're working at anything else is so as to do the work of the Lord. That's the work. And that will never go in vain. Whereas living a life as a Christian, but still living for yourself, and not actually doing the work of the Lord, that's receiving the grace of God in vain. For he has called you and given you 30 years as a Christian to do his work on this world. And at the end of 30 years, you've got absolutely nothing to show for it. You've never taught a Sunday school class. You've never helped a missionary. You've never shown hospitality to somebody. You've never shared the gospel with them. You never mentioned that you're even a, a Christian to other people at the work. You stand there naked, saved but with nothing. What a disappointment that day will be. What an awful disappointment. To receive the grace of God in vain. And so Paul makes his appeal. Do not receive the grace of God in vain. Please do not do that. But rather, make sure that wherever and whenever you can, you speak of the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's done for us and who he is and how great he is and that he is coming again to judge the living and the dead. Wherever, whenever. Now, having done this, some of us may now feel like, okay, I'm, I can see what I'm supposed to do, but Philip, you don't get it. I'm no good at doing it. And I'm saying, remember clay pots. They're not really good either. Right? We're not talking about good, but we're talking about the willingness to do it. However, I have no doubt that if you go to your pastor and say to him, I really would like to, but I just don't know what to do, he'll help you and train you and equip you for doing it. The training, equipping bit, that's... That's easy when a person's willing. That's impossible when a person's not. There's lots of good courses. I won't mention two ways to live because, you know, I just did. And <laughs> lots of good courses to do it. it, it, it and, and that we can help you and train you in the doing of it. But the unwilling person, training in, you can go to a thousand courses, you'll never do it. The willing person, even before you finish a course, you'll be doing it. That's, that's the real thing. So the real business is to grasp the fear of the Lord. To remember that one day you're going to stand before him. The real thing is to grasp the love of Christ, which gives you no option. The real thing is to understand the plan of God, that we are right now at that point. Christ died, he's risen, now's the, now's the moment. What God has done needs the apple. Why God has chosen to speak through us was to bring all glory to him rather than to the other agency he may use. But this is the agency he's chosen to use. Us. Human words. Which are his powerful divine word. That's all we've got to tell people about.
Tell them about Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for his death on the cross for us and his resurrection. We thank you that he sits at the right hand of your power now in all glory and honour and that he is sending his angels, his messengers, his people out into the world carrying the message of reconciliation. We thank you, Father, that you were in him reconciling the world to yourself, not counting our trespasses against us, but giving us the message of reconciliation to take to others. Heavenly Father, we are here in this incredible city with people from all over the world, all manner of religious, ethnic, cultural, social backgrounds passing around about us, here under the very shadow of the crescent and in the light of terrible conflicts happening to the north of here. Heavenly Father, please take our lips and let them be given sacred only to thee, that our message may go out, your message may go out, that you would use us, Father, to take your message, the message of reconciliation, the message of your son's life and death and resurrection, that we might take it to others, that they might hear of Jesus and they might know through him of you and your fatherly love for us and his faithfulness and love even unto death. We do pray, Heavenly Father, you would so imbue our hearts and minds with the message of the gospel that we would do that which we think we do in our repentance, that we would truly deny ourselves, we would truly take up the cross and we would truly follow the Lord Jesus, that we would lay down our lives for his sake and the gospel's. And so laying it down for him and for you that we might be servants of others, that we might put ourselves out for others, that we might lay our lives down and be enslaved for them so that they too might share in the great joy of salvation that is ours in Christ Jesus. And we pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.